0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just Bites. All right, everyone. Here we go. Another fantastic episode. My guest for today is Christina Safran, and you are not going to believe all the work she is doing to help support people, families, anyone who is struggling with an eating disorder or their supports. Christina is one of the co-founders of Project Heal, which is an incredible Incredible organization, and she's got so much more to talk about than just that. So, as always, let's just dive right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I feel like I am sitting across from a soul sister. I am really excited about our guest. I would like to introduce all of you to christina safran. Christina, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor to be here
0: i am I am so honored to have you. I feel like you and I work from the same heart space as recovered people, clinicians in the field, whatever and What you have done in the field of eating disorders is really remarkable. So could you please introduce yourself? Let the listeners know who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Karen. So Christina Safran, um, I am one of the co-founders of Project Heal and now the co-founder and CEO of Equip Health. And I have been in the eating disorder field for what feels like my whole life. Uh, I was diagnosed with anorexia at 10 years old. I struggled throughout my adolescence and at 15 and my own recovery started. Project HEAL upon learning that 80% of the 30 million Americans with eating disorders don't get treatment. I said, this is horrible. We have to do something about it and uh, started that nonprofit and it did absolutely incredible work to ensure that we could make sure that everyone with eating disorders had access to treatment. And, you know, really the catalyst for moving over to Equip Health, which is my new startup, which provides um, access to family-based care delivered at home fully virtually. And we'll get into that. But it was really seeing over the last two decades that our research has continued to improve in the fields. We have evidence-based outpatient treatments that work, and it was really pretty horrifying to see that those weren't getting to folks. More and more people I saw, nobody had access to quality outpatient treatment Even as we saw more and more people incrementally having access to residential treatment, it always struck me as this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So essentially, after kind of years of plugging holes in a broken system, said, you know what? I I think I know the system that needs to exist, and I I think we might just need to build it. Uh, And that was about two years ago, prior to COVID. So it's been a really, really exciting ride.
0: I I'm so excited. There's so many places I want to go. I think in order to rein my own excitement in. Let's let's start with Project Heal because it is so beautiful, it is so special and this is where I feel like you and I work from our hearts where we we went through it and we don't just want to sit by and and help in a in a small way. We want what can we do big to help others. Can you talk about Project Heal?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I was you know, really fortunate for a number of reasons. One, just simply I talk about, you know, the fact that I really fit the stereotype, right? And, you know, listeners of your show know that eating disorders affect people across race, class, ethnicity, a third of sufferers are men, most people with eating disorders are not underweight. But, you know, I was really fortunate that, kind of fitting that mold and stereotype. When I, you know, started my illness, it got visible. And so I got help quickly. Um, I was also really lucky that I had great insurance, what, you know, I my insurance didn't cover, my family could afford to cover. And so really fortunate for a number of reasons. And it always really struck me. We know that, you know, one of the hard things about treating eating disorders is that recovery is ambivalence at best. Uh, You know, most people, there's at least a, a part of them, oftentimes a really big part of them that wants to hold on to their eating disorder. And we know this is certainly true for adolescents. So, you know, I just remember it really, really struck me that, oh my goodness, like I went into treatment kicking and screaming. I didn't want it at all. And thank God it was only in hindsight could I say, thank God that my parents forced me in and I had the insurance to cover it. Um, but so I saw so many people when I was in treatment being kicked out early because insurance cut before they were ready to go and then got out and and learned the stats. And it was you know, really, I, I talk about, I had formed this healthy recovery oriented friendship with Leanna Rosamond, who I had met in treatment and really just started as a, you know, helping one another in recovery, pushing one another, going out for dinner and going out for dessert and, and, you know, really, really supporting one another in that recovery journey, which will come back to a lot of the reason that I started Equip Health, um, but as we kind of started to get better and our conversations shifted from our own issues to kind of broader societal issues, it just coming kept coming back to like, we were so lucky. And this is Just so unjust that eighty percent of the thirty million Americans with eating disorders don't get treatment. And so, at fifteen years old, I I also like to talk a lot about channeling the temperament traits that make you vulnerable to an eating disorder into something really positive. And I think Project Heal is an absolutely wonderful example of that. We said we got to do something about it. And then I have to say, I mean, we had forty chapters before we had a single staff member. Right? We started Project Heal in two thousand eight, and it was still. I talk a lot about the field still has a long way to go, but it's really exciting to look back at how far we've come since 2008, because back then it was really people still thought eating disorders were right rich girl vanity issues. I had never met anybody who recovered, and doctors still told me, you know, you're a chronic case. You're going to be sick with this forever. This isn't something that you get better from. And so for a lot of those reasons, too, I felt it was really important to take a stand and talk about this and, you know, be a, a beacon and a model of hope. And I think it really resonated with a lot of people. You can see the 40 chapters before we the a single staff member, people were like, yeah, this is something that I struggle with that we need to talk about. And it's absolutely unacceptable that, you know, two young 15 year olds had to start a nonprofit to um, help the, the failing healthcare system.
0: So. There's there's many aspects of Project Heal. First of all, you do scholarships, correct, for for people to enter treatment, and and then there are also correct me if I'm wrong, peer supported groups.
1: Well, so there have been a number of iterations of Project Heal. Oh, uh, oh my <laughs> so we'll take you through uh, uh, kind of the history and the journey. So, yeah, we started just to raise money and provide scholarships, and and pretty early on realized that you know, and your listeners know how expensive treatment can be. And so in order to really scale what we were doing, you know, in addition to raising money, really wanted to develop partnerships with treatment centers, with outpatient providers to donate a percentage of their treatment. And, you know, I think you know this well, but um, a lot of therapists who go into the field, you know, end up um, taking private pay clients and not taking insurance because currently insurance reimburses so little and it's really hard to, you know, pay your rent, pay your mortgage, pay your bills while you're taking those insurance bills. But people got into this profession because they wanted to help people. And so it actually became a really easy kind of, and, 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 wonderful partnership to say to these providers look like you got into this field for the right reason to treat people who couldn't afford it and we're going to make this process easy for you we'll do the vetting we'll do the selection and match you with somebody who can provide pro bono services to um as you know we kind of went along uh and had these these 40 chapters and all these people who wanted to get involved you know i really started thinking about we have this amazing community like what else can we do in the field and so We had organized a meeting, oh my goodness, back in 2014 with some of the um, leading clinicians and researchers in the field and, you know, had surveyed our community of, of, you know, thousands and thousands of patients and families, and really were trying to understand from them what was the most important thing in your recovery, and it was unanimously other people who've been there, other people who understand my brain and can really show that recovery is not only possible, but really worth fighting for. Um, And, uh, you know, many years ago, we had already had peer support had come out as something that was empirically validated evidence-based and really been shown to support people a number of mental illnesses but really hadn't gone a long way in eating disorders and i think that's due to the you know great stigma i remember people talking about how do you know if people are really recovered what if they trigger one another all the harms right and it's like really valid concerns but that doesn't mean like don't do it that means like do it in a smart way and (laughs) figure out how to um how to prevent some of those concerns and so we started um Communities of Healing, which was, you know, one of one of the first peer support programs for folks with eating disorders. And I think, you know, really smartly we partnered with Columbia University to do a randomized control trial on it because, you know, oftentimes I say that your support wasn't evidence-based because nobody had done a study on it, right? <laughs> and so I was like, we need to do a study on it because the field needs this research to show that this works. It's like, we all knew it. It was a lot of common sense, but we need this this piece of evidence. I'm really glad that we, that we had that and we saw such beautiful beautiful outcomes with that communities of healing program so many people i mean from all walks of life new diagnoses people who had been ill for 20 plus years who had never met anybody who was recovered and we saw real life changing outcomes there and and again we'll come back to this most people who came to our program we had both peer support in person peer support groups in a number of cities and then one to one mentorship didn't have an outpatient therapist um and you know, peer support, while it's so powerful with these illnesses, with the second highest mortality rate, can only go so far uh, without a real outpatient therapist. So just pin that <laughs> pin that in your head for a little bit. But um, so that really had got me thinking, and actually I'll start to transition. It was actually Anthem who had approached me about three years ago to say, we've heard about this Communities of Healing program. Um, we're really excited to explore reimbursement for it. And it kind of just naturally got me into conversations with payers where I was like, so glad you're reimbursing for peer support. Absolutely part of the standard of care, but like, it's not enough. People need good quality outpatient treatment. And right now that's incredibly inaccessible, but you're spending a lot of money on treatment that doesn't work as well. And um, they basically said, you're right, Ben, if you built it, we will come. And that was two years ago. So I started to think about the idea for Equip about two years ago. Um, in the meantime, then, so I'm thinking about you know transitioning over to start this new organization to work within the existing healthcare system. Um, Project Heal. Uh, we, we had a leadership transition. It was a year of a pandemic, the hardest year for nonprofits. And um, we, I'm, I'm so incredibly proud. I mean, it was an incredibly tough year, and you can imagine transitioning over your, your baby, your, your, you know, lifeblood was something that was really, really hard. But I am so proud of where it is now. Rebecca Air is our CEO, and she is just absolutely phenomenal. I had actually hired her about two years ago to really work on our treatment access program to say we're saying no to the majority of our applicants just because we get so, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of applications per year from people who can't afford treatment. And we're a small nonprofit, we can't afford all the resources. Um, and so I had hired her to really one partner with um, Patrick Kennedy and the Kennedy Forum to think about how we can work with insurance companies, how we can increase access and really to think about how we can scale up treatment access. and. The pandemic came upon us, and it was the hardest year for nonprofits. Rebecca really smartly said, You know what? I absolutely love both of our programs, and I think we've done a lot of great work in peer support, and it's starting to be picked up all over the place. There are other organizations that do this, and when you look at the the entire field, Project Hill is the only one that funds treatment access. And in a year where people are losing their jobs, losing their health insurance, this is just critically, critically important. And so we had to make the hard decision to say, I think we got to focus to make sure that we can get the most amount of people treatment and actually super proud. We ended up partnering with ANAD and um, you know, gifting them over our communities of healing program to combine with their own mentorship program so that they could continue to grow and nurture that community while Project HEAL really doubled down on um, the treatment access work that we're doing. So now Project HEAL does... Um, we've really done a lot of work on our, our healer circle partnerships, right? So with many residential, PHP, IOP, and then a number of outpatient healers around the country, we've uh, increased the number of people we've been able to say yes to exponentially over the last year. I want to say, um, you know, last year it was something like over a hundred people, we were able to help out with treatment, which is pretty amazing. And and more than we had been able to do in any previous year in the year of COVID. So really exciting. We also have cash assistance grants, so helping people with, you know, transportation to and from treatment, co-pays for outpatient therapy visits, you know, dogs sitting while they're in treatment, uh, new clothes when their body changes, all of the, the kind of extras that really add up in recovery and are incredibly important. Um, And then finally, really helping people to navigate their insurance and really advocate for themselves, which I'm super excited about because the reality is, you know, these insurance denials are illegal but they happen anyway. <laughs> right? Insurance is, you know, notoriously incredibly hard to navigate and that's purposeful so that people won't push back and won't fight back and so we really help people to advocate for themselves for single case agreements to show their insurance company look this is really the treatment that is desired and you should pay for this and I'm I'm super excited to say that we have a, a really high success rate with helping people to do that. So I'm just so proud. It's like I can't imagine a better outcome. Um, than handing over your baby to truly somebody who is doing a better job. You know, like, I'm like, this is, this is better than I could have imagined it. And it's, it's, it's just really, really a joy to watch Rebecca and the team continue to have that organization thrive.
0: I want to point out two things. First of all, and you had mentioned this earlier, like, you took your the traits that were going into your eating disorder and created something beautiful, powerful, healing, special to you. Things that, special to the world. This is what I say to clients all the time. Can you imagine what you could accomplish if you if that time and space and energy in your brain that it was all eating disorder thoughts and eating disorder behaviors? Oh, yeah. what you could do.
1: Yeah, no, it's so powerful. We always talk about, I mean, both Project Heal and Equip are really examples of anorexia gone good, right? You turn those temperament traits on their head. And I think it's also really Encouraging, hopeful, and validating for people to really understand that this isn't a personal failing. This isn't a personal flaw. This is, you know, a brain based illness and sort of the way that your brain is wired. It's not anything about you. And guess what? You can actually learn how to refocus all of those traits into something really positive. And yeah, it's one of the things that I love most about working in this field because when people recover from eating disorders, they just go on to do. It absolutely incredible things.
0: Well, it reminds me of when Carolyn Coston talks about are your traits an asset or a liability? And we cannot take parts out of ourselves, like eradicate them and throw them away. We just, we need to nurture them, massage them so that we shift them into energy that's going to heal us heals. And by the way, I also don't want to give people the idea that they have to do something remarkable in as a recovered person. You just anyone just being in the world without suffering from an eating disorder is a remarkable person. So there's I, I hope people are, are hearing that. The other thing I wanted to point out was how proud you are. Because I know for myself, and I always use my own ex- my own self as an example, I never thought I could accomplish, I was ever going to be able to accomplish anything. I didn't think I could navigate through college, through life, through relationships, through a job. So I was really proud of my eating disorder. Mm. And for people that have never had an eating disorder, you might not understand that, but Christina, Chris, I wore it as like a badge of, of like honor. Like I am proud of this. Yeah. And to hear you say, I am proud of what I created, what I did is, is just a a powerful feeling. And maybe I'm over, I'm over analyzing it. Like it's from one recovered person to another, but yeah. And, and because listeners can't see you like I can, the way you smile when you say, I'm proud of this, that's a powerful thing to witness and to hear and and for listeners to hear.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I think it's part of, So part of my, you know, temperament traits gone good is this like this drive, this, you know, you could put it in the liability form kind of compulsivity that makes me just keep going and not take no for an answer and just continue to pound down the door. So you can see the asset liability component of it. But I I think it's it's it's. I'm usually going so hard because we have we still while we've done so much great work, have so much work to do with people who don't have access to treatment. And so I'm usually just moving so fast that I don't often get opportunities like this to just like pause and reflect on all of the amazing work that has happened in in the fields and, you know, through Project Heal and Equip. And um, it's it, it is really a special thing to be able to reflect back. So I really appreciate you giving me the space to do so.
0: Yeah it is it is absolutely my pleasure. So let's shift gears a little bit because as I've often always said on the podcast let's talk about family-based therapy because my family Definitely contributed to parts of my eating disorder. And my family was an amazing part of the recovery process. So let's bring in family-based therapy because that's something that you're you do so well. So how how would you like to share that with listeners?
1: I love that. And I, I love that you point out that you know, we know that families don't cause eating disorders full stop. And that doesn't mean that they're doing everything right, right? When you're kid is in crisis, it it makes everyone in crisis and you don't always show up in your, as your best self. And so I, I think that that's just a beautiful reminder to point out. But so, you know, we've known over the past 20 years that family-based treatment is the leading evidence-based treatment for adolescents and young adults with eating disorders. And how I like to sort of describe it simplistically for folks who are listening and aren't familiar is um, family-based treatment really allows you to take the healthy individuals in the households, and family is really whatever family means for you, Um, chosen family we we absolutely believe in, to help structure the home environment for pro-recovery behaviors. Eating disorder recovery is really hard. Eating disorders have some of the strongest genetic and neurobiological underpinnings of any mental illness. And so it's not that people are choosing not to eat and engage in pro-health behaviors, is that their brains really aren't letting them, right? I remember, and I'm sure you can resonate deep in my illness, you know, there was a, I mean, there were many points that I I wanted to be sick forever. I didn't want to get better. And there were definitely points where I was like, I'm killing myself. I'm hurting my family. I'm not in school. I'm wasting my life. I knew logically and cognitively, like all the reasons to get better. Couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do the behaviors because the mental anguish was just too strong. And, you know, it's a long process. You got to face your greatest fear every single day, multiple times a day. While, you know, I always talk about my recovery as like actively hating myself for years and doing, you know, the very thing that I fear most every day, multiple times a day. So really understood in that perspective, it's just, it's not only ineffective, it's kind of mean to ask people to, to do this on their own. It's just really, really hard. You need to bring in supports Um, And we know that, you know, this has been the leading evidence-based treatment over the past, you know, 20 years, but one hasn't been well disseminated. So a lot of people don't have access to it. And then two only results in full remission for 47% of adolescents. So our best treatment still leaves 53% of people not getting better. So we still had some work to do there. I want to
0: point out something real quickly to make sure that everybody, you know, understands when we talk about, you know, having to face food six times a day, you know, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner. The fear is not just with somebody with anorexia nervosa. I want to make sure Everybody knows that Christina and I are talking about there is a fear with people with bulimia, with binge eating disorder, with orthorexia, with ARFID. And so I always, I hope you don't mind. I just wanted to make sure we we brought that in because it's imperative that this is all inclusive.
1: So glad that you did that.
0: I just wanted to make sure that, that we added that. I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. Go ahead.
1: And going even further, I mean, for all of the illnesses, we know that all eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, ARFID, OSFED, all stem from starvation and restriction. And so it's so, so important. And also like, we really can't do the work until we get somebody's brain to start working properly with that proper nutrition. And I think, you know, that's one thing that the field has really learned over the last 20 years of, you know, it used to be like, let's Let's motivate people with talk therapy to want to get better, to want to eat. And it's like, actually, the actions come before the thinking. And I think that's something that's really hard about eating disorder recovery, right? Because people are like, well, let's let's get the motivation first. And it's like, no, that really doesn't happen. You got to sort of take the leap. And that's why other people are so important to help you take that leap when you don't yet want it for yourself or believe that it's possible for yourself.
0: You know, I I, I think I've used this example before, Gwen Grab in the book that she wrote with Carolyn Coston, The Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder. Gwen wrote something and the first moment I read it, I shuddered. I was like, oh, I hate that expression. And then thank God I continued reading because I was like, oh, it actually makes sense. She said, with eating disorder work, you have to fake it till you make it. And I'm like, isn't the whole point of recovery is to stop faking to start being authentic and genuine in the world. And then, gratefully, she went on, she said, because the eating disorder has some egocentric qualities to it. And so, yeah, you do have to fake it till you make it. And that's what you're talking about with that nutritional part. You have to start feeding yourself. Stop binging and purging. Stop binging. Stop all these behaviors while you're doing the emotional work. But it's just, that's what I was thinking of. And I used to hate that expression until Gwen wrote it. And I was like, all right, Gwen, you got me there.
1: So true. And it was definitely one of the mantras of my recovery. And I think, you know, we talk a lot, my co-founder Aaron Parks talks a lot about the difference between treatment that feels good and treatment that works. And unfortunately, eating disorder treatment really doesn't feel very good. It's really hard. It feels really crappy and it's so much easier and feels a lot better to go to somebody who's, validating and a good listener and empathetic, right? But like, that's not actually the thing that's going to get you better. It's the actions. It's like sitting in the suck and just believe, like knowing and believing. And and that's the importance of having a team that's like, I I will get there. I will get there. Um, And I also think that's the power of people with lived experience because it's so hard when you're going through it. And when I was going through it and people were like, oh, recovery is not possible. You're always going to struggle with this. It's like, What's the point of doing all of this work then? Um, So I think just having people like, I get it. I know how hard this is. And that's so much of what we do, right? It's just sitting in the suck with people, being like, "This, this really is hard and it will get better. Trust me, I've been there. I've been where you are and it does get better. Keep going.
0: And I've often said, I've never met a recovered person who ever regrets being recovered. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, I love that. I can pivot over what I was saying is, you know, it only results in full remission and that's what we want, full remission, full recovery, full stop for 47% of adolescents. And so, you know, that was something that I think really plagued myself and my co-founder and equip is really, we call it family-based treatment plus, right? Because it's really based on our, you know, many 15 plus years of experience collectively of talking to patients and families who you know, had family-based treatment work for them, and who really didn't, and saying what else did you need? What else was really important to make this, um, to make this work? And so we do a couple of things really differently. The first is that we give everybody a five-person care team. Right, traditional FBT is done once a week with a once-a-week therapist, and you are fighting your eating disorder twenty-four-seven. Uh, it is often just not enough support. You do need more support, and so everybody here has a therapist, a dietitian. That was also one of the things that, you know, traditional FBT doesn't come with the dietitian because it's all about, I mean, the philosophy is parental empowerment and kind of the message of, you know how to feed your kid to which a lot of parents were like, clearly not, right? <laughs> That's the, the most disempowering thing. And so really helping people to tangibly structure um, how they're going to get into recovery. An MD, um, because we know that eating disorders have incredibly strong medical complications. We know they're the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. And then psychiatry as well, because we can do a lot of things that make the recovery process a lot easier with psych, um, psychotropic medications. And then a peer mentor, so somebody who's been in a strong and active recovery for at least two years, and a family mentor, so family member who's helped their loved one through the process of recovery. And the team is, you know, all employees, all trained in evidence-based treatment. We deliver training, supervision, and working together and on the same page. And that's something that's so huge too, because, you know, it's hard enough for most families to find one individual in their community who knows what they're doing with eating disorders, let alone full team. But typically what we saw happening was, you know, if somebody could cobble together, a therapist and a dietitian and an MD. The therapist would be like, all right, you need to gain 10 pounds. The dietitian would be like, you need to gain 20 pounds. And the MD is like, nah, it's a phase. Don't worry about it. Nobody's on the same page. And that's where the eating disorder wins. So really having this team that's on the same page and that you can check in with. We we give families access to unlimited sessions. Um, so typically we're seeing, you know, in the first four months, they're engaging in about five to seven hours of care each week um, delivered virtually. And they also have the ability to, you know, check in with their care team via messaging and say, it was a really hard weekend, I need to hop on a call. And the number of times that I needed that in the moment support, my family needed that, it really, really does help people to avoid the treatment fatigue, right? Treatment is really, really tiring. And so you might have a therapy session and for the first 24 hours, you're super motivated and you do everything right, but then, it kind of regressed to the mean throughout the week. So just having people there who are, you know, constantly surrounding you, and then I think something that's been you know really exciting for us as well with the fully virtual format is that it's really allowed families to bring their entire village to treatment. Right. So when I was going through. FBT, both my parents worked. Um, and my mom would commute home every Tuesday and Thursday from New York City to you know the suburbs, have to figure out child care for my younger brother. And oftentimes, both my parents couldn't come to the session because they were working. And it was 2 PM on a Tuesday and Thursday. Now we have families bring in, you know, two parents and aunt and grandma and stepbrother and you know, they really bring in their entire village and treatment just works better when you can have those multiple supports and never would that have been able to happen in a brick and mortar environment and location and then the final thing I'll say is like doing it virtually really allows people to engage in their life, right? Treatment takes up a lot of time. It's really tiring. And so this approach really allows people to say, go out, build a life worth living, be in Girl Scouts, be in orchestra, You know, do the things that are gonna actually help you to get out of the eating disorder and build up reasons to get out of it, which I think is a real beauty of, of doing it at home in your community.
0: I read something that you had commented about your experience going in and out of treatment which is you actually at times would have rather been in treatment because you knew it it was very safe you knew the rules you knew how to you know how to do it and that's one of the things that happens we've often seen the transition from residential to p h p is so significant it is like whiplash, and the client is like it 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 doesn't it's so hard to connect it to the real world things that are happening that that's when that's when we start seeing relapse. That also breaks my heart because that's when the client gets blamed for relapse. Mm -hmm. And then the family gets mad. And then the insurance company calls them chronic. And then the residential program doesn't want to take them back again because this is their fourth time. The transition is unbelievably, And I'm not saying this to discourage anyone. I'm just actually saying it to honor the difficulty of what people go through. And so to be able to be in your life, collect life experiences as you're letting go of eating disorder experiences is amazing.
1: Yeah, I think you said it absolutely beautifully, and and yeah, that was my experience, especially in middle school, right? Like, I don't know anybody who wants to go back to middle school, but (laughs) certainly not me. And you know, to be out of it and to be in this environment that you know is surrounded by people who understand you, that is safe and easy, because for everybody with an eating disorder, regardless of the ambivalence, when you don't have a choice, it actually is. And with FBTN residential, it. It's a little bit freeing. It's like, okay, I don't need to fight my brain all this time. So you have that, you're getting nutritional rehabilitation stored. And you're also, you know, in this environment that you don't have to deal with, triggers. You don't have to deal with, you know, the hard things in life. And when you come back, yeah, every time I would come back, I would just want to be back there and be back there. And, you know, after my third hospitalization, after my fourth hospitalization, because I had basically spent my entire freshman year in and out of hospitals, my parents were like, all right, you know, you can go to a residential for a year out West, or you can try this new family-based treatment approach. And I do talk about like, There was nothing I wanted more than to go to residential. I would like dream of going to residential. And it was the healthiest decision I ever made when I was sick to say like, I just missed my entire freshman year of high school. If I miss sophomore year, I might never get out of this thing. And it's been really sad to see people that I was in treatment with now 15 years ago who just took a different path than me and didn't have access to evidence based treatment and have continued to sort of cycle in and out. And, you know, not to say that I think recovery is possible for everybody at every point of their journey, but we know that the longer that you live with an untreated eating disorder, the harder it is, the more those neural connections fire together and the harder it is to, to fight that illness. In addition to, you know, I have many people that I know who like never finished high school, never finished college, never held a real relationship or a job. And so, It it just makes recovery a lot harder.
0: And part of, and and again, I will speak from my own experience, part of my eating disorder is that I didn't understand life. I didn't understand how my friends were doing it, it, which appeared so easy, which Probably was was not for them. I didn't. I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I was going along the same path as my peers. And so, the longer somebody is in residential, and please hear me, everybody, there is a time and place for everything. So, this is never a podcast about being like this. Level of care is not right. Although the longer someone is in residential, the wider that gap gets between them and what they're wanting, which is connection, fitting in, being along with their peers. So then their eating disorder gets even louder and louder. And so it's it's tricky, right? And some people absolutely need residential. So it's a tricky situation. I don't know if you have any thoughts about
1: that. No I, I think you're absolutely right and I just think you know what always struck me is a lot of the legislation and advocacy seem to be going into more residential care. And it always just struck me as like if we want to solve this for the masses and have treatment access for the masses, our solution just can't be residential care. simply there are 30 million Americans who suffer with eating disorders. we don't have enough space and so we need to be thinking of new solutions. And also if you give people, evidence-based treatment that is multidisciplinary, that is specialized, that is outpatient, that takes the amount of times that we contract with insurance companies for a full year of treatment. And we say to them, look, the literature actually says it takes seven years to fully recover. We think we can do a lot better than that, but to give people the best chance of, we we say we want this to be the last eating disorder treatment folks will ever need, they really do need a full year with us. And when you give people that full year and that comprehensive support, not only do people get better, but it actually is more affordable when you avoid this roll of, of in and out of centers.
0: I know this is, is sort of a, a big question, but I always feel that it is imperative to have the family involved. And the more, I'm going to say chaotic the family system is, the more I want the family involved because this is still a family unit. And so we, how do you do that though? Because during, how do I say this? How do you do this at the very beginning stages with families that are really, Chaotic, at odds with each other, disruptive—you know—and now you're all alter- like you're trying to do so much at once is yeah. what I'm what I'm saying. How do you navigate through that?
1: Yeah, it's such a good point, and I think you know people are going to go back to their families, kind of regardless. So you, you need to figure out how to work with it. It's it's an inevitability that you need to have to figure out to do. The other thing is like. We're actually really bad at predicting who's going to do well at FBT. There are a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes, especially as you go into, you know, under-resourced communities. And we actually find that under-resourced communities do better with this treatment approach. Um, Interestingly, that, you know, two-parent households, divorced parent households can do incredibly well with this treatment approach. So, you know that, I said it before, but when your family, when when your child is, is ill and has the second highest, has the illness with the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses, a lot of people look chaotic and crazy and enmeshed, and, and right? Like they're, your child is, is, is suffering with a deadly illness and so it's really hard. And so this is why we employ the multidisciplinary care team. We utilize, in addition to family-based treatment, dialectical behavioral therapy, lean really heavily on that cognitive behavioral therapy. And I have to say, I think here is where the mentors are really the secret because we've had family mentors who have been in the exact same boat. Um, This happens a lot actually with Orthorexia and fat phobia, which, you know, is is so prevalent in our society and our world. And also with the number of our families who struggle with eating disorders. And we try to take a really non-judgmental, non-blaming approach because the families who are dealing with it, they've grown up in the same toxic culture and have had these messages their entire life. And it's so powerful to have a family mentor who's like, I was in the same exact place. I was. I was also feeding my daughter fettuccine alfredo while I was eating a salad, and I had to learn that that was really harmful for her recovery. And here's how I got out of it, and here's how I dealt with my own stuff, and here's how you can too. And some of the most absolutely beautiful relationships have come out of that. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's really powerful. And you know, I, I think again, just saying we really. You cannot predict who's going to do well with this treatment. And so really try to have a super wide open front door, because we do believe that as long as you put in the work, anybody can really do well with this treatment.
0: That reminds me of when I used to be a clinical director, I think the group that I got the most emotional from doing, and I mean that in a positive way, was multifamily group. When I would watch one parent or one partner say to another parent or another sibling or whatnot, I've been there. I get it. This is how we worked through it. And also you say that in front of the one who's struggling. So all, you know, know, everything is transparent. Nobody's like telling secrets behind closed doors. It is a powerful and Unbelievably beautiful thing to witness, Christina. It is like I I literally I, I've had tears in my eyes in many of the multifamily groups. Yeah. Because, and I've also loved how a, a person who's struggling with something can hear something differently from another parent. Or another parent can hear something differently from another child who's struggling, where they're like, uh-uh, mom, you're not. That's not right. Or dad, whatever. Oh,
1: well, one of our favorite things is when uh, we have a, a family skills group and oftentimes our peer mentors go to it and can talk to, you know, like this is how I was feeling in the eating disorder and here's where I am now. And families just count that as like the most amazing thing. And also just to see like they have all these peer mentors around them who have recovered and to get that daily dose of like hope and inspiration and this is why i'm doing it this is why it's possible when our people in treatment are like oh yeah like i want to be a mentor too. it's like yes like that's what that's what we want you to do um and i did want to add in you know one more point about Uh, people, you know, the lived experience component and people having people who relate. One of the things that I've been really excited that we've been able to do at Equip because we use this employment model is really reach out to communities that really reflect the diversity of people who are suffering with eating disorders. I think we both know that unfortunately we've had a field that looks a lot like us is really, you know, white and cis and thin. And um, it doesn't reflect the real diversity of people suffering with eating disorders. But unfortunately, you know, training has been incredibly inaccessible. You not only have to go to college and grad school, but then pay additional, you know, money and and travel to go. And so we've ended up with a very homogenous field. And so we're really excited that we, have basically any of our any of our um, families can be matched with at least one person on their treatment team who shares some aspect of their lived experience outside of the eating disorder so whether that's experience with ARFID with BD with different diagnoses with males right with male mentors with transgender mentors with we actually have a mom right now who uh helped her daughter to recover with FBT while she was homeless living in her car so that socioeconomic mm-hmm. diversity and it just helps, right? Like it just helps when you have somebody that can relate to you on that aspect as well. Imagine being a mom like that and having a family mentor who's, you know, super privileged and says, oh, bring in like a babysitter to help at meals. It's like, how invalidating is that? But for somebody to really come from where you're coming from, I think makes the recovery process, you know, that much, that much easier and that much better.
0: Christina, I, I feel like you and I could go on for like like two or three more hours just talking about this yep. <laughs> I, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> I am so so sad to say that we're coming to an end. I do want to ask before I ask your final question, is there anything else that I didn't ask that you'd like to share? Is there anything you just wanted to make sure that listeners
1: knew about or heard? I think this, this is part of the lived experience thing, but I think something that I think is incredibly important in eating disorder recovery, sort of the missing ingredient in mine and a lot of other people's was health at every size, right? We live in such a fat phobic society and it is really hard to recover when you haven't done that work and you know you' you're not afraid of the waking and you really trust that bodies come in all shapes and sizes and you can be healthy at all shapes and sizes. Um, I think that's that's incredibly important and incredibly powerful. and I'm really excited that we bring that into the, the treatment approach um, and have you know many mentors and providers and family mentors with experience who live in larger bodies and can really help out people um, in that way.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Christina, it has been an absolute pleasure, but I can't let you go without asking my final question, which is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say?
1: She didn't take no for an answer.
0: There it is, everyone. Didn't even skip a beat. She didn't take no for an answer. Christina, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, that was so much fun. It It was, it was wonderful. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. You're you're providing unbelievable services. And so I just, I just want to say thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Karen. And are you in LA?
0: No, I was. I used to be. Now I'm in Boston. So I know I I was in Los Angeles for years when I used to run Montanito.
1: Oh, well, okay. So we are in Boston. I mean, now that the world is reopening, we should be there a fair amount because a bunch of our investors are there. So uh, it would be fun to meet in person. I'll let you know next time we're there.
0: Nothing would make me happier. Nothing. All right, everyone, you're hearing Christina and I make our plans. So (laughs) the way. This is what happens when you're recovered. You make great connections. You meet people. You collaborate. And so I will be looking forward to it. Me as well. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk. With recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts, by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and google podcast all right everybody be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week